Hello, I'm Michael Serapio, and this is the Primetime Politics Podcast. Tonight on Primetime Politics, when Justin... We've seen where this leader of the opposition stands. On this side of the aisle, we're going to stay focused on helping Canadians for real. Meets Pierre. Park the hypocrisy and axe the tax hikes. We'll take a look at what happened in the House today as Pierre Poliev leads the Conservative charge and the Prime Minister returns to the House. As part of this review process, it is vital that we listen and learn from the public. Cannabis, nearly four years after its legalization. What has been the impact on public health, on young Canadians, and on crime? We'll examine the issue as a government review gets underway. And... This census war has unlimited potential to do terrible harm. With Vladimir Putin conscripting more troops and cracking down on dissent, does Canada and its allies need to re-examine the strategy in Ukraine? This is Primetime Politics. Hello everyone, I'm Michael Serapio. Both Justin Trudeau and Pierre Poliev are known to be strong debaters in the House, and today both brought their A-game as the Prime Minister returned to the House of Commons to face the new leader of the opposition. The, the, the leader of the Liberal Party has an opportunity to respect the fact that heating your home in January and February in Canada is not a luxury. And it does not make those Canadians polluters. They're just trying to survive. This from a prime minister who burned more jet fuel in one month than 20 average Canadians burn in an entire year. So will the prime minister ground the jet, park the hypocrisy, and axe the tax hikes? The right honourable prime minister. On this side of the House, we're going to continue to stay focused on direct and real help for Canadians, responding to the challenges they're facing with meaningful measures that are going to help millions of Canadians in the middle class and those working hard to join it. Uh, If Canadians had followed the advice of the Leader of the Opposition and invested in volatile cryptocurrencies in an attempt to, quote, opt out of inflation, they would have lost half of their savings. Mr. Speaker, responsible leadership means stepping up for Canadians and being there to support them. Will the Conservative leader support our measures to support Canadians? Well, with more, let's bring in CPAC's Martin Stringer. You know, Martin, uh, there's been a lot of anticipation for this encounter, the Prime Minister in the House with Pierre Polyev as Conservative leader. How did it go? Well, Michael, in a way, this was a bit like two prize fighters in a boxing ring sort of squaring off against each other and trying to get, a, get each other's measure and sort of sizing each other up. And there were some jabs uh, exchanged. Pierre Poliev was stuck to his game plan as expected. He went straight at the issue of affordability and the cost of living, and he repeated something you're going to hear from the Tories a lot, and that is the call for the government to cancel the upcoming increase in the carbon tax and the increase in payroll deductions for CPP and EI. Uh, the Prime Minister, uh, basically, he returned with something we're going to hear a lot from the government benches, and that, he's, he, that is he challenged Mr. Poilievre. He says, will your Tories vote against our legislation that will bring in a top-up to a renter's benefit and a top-up to the GST uh, rebate as well as uh, the beginnings of uh, dental care? 
Now, obviously, they represent different parties, different ideas. As I said, they're both very good debaters within the House of Commons. But let's talk a bit more personally. How do these two men actually feel about each other? Well, you know, it's hard to actually know, but I think it's safe to say that there's no love lost between these two leaders. They're both very intense and very proud leaders. Monsieur Poilievre has spent all of the leadership campaign uh, being very personal in his attacks on Mr. Trudeau. He uh, de basically depicts him as someone he says is uh, out of touch. He's a child of privilege. He's, no he's not caring about the average Canadian in his economic policies. And then last week, we saw the Prime Minister, uh, Mr. Trudeau, basically started his attack against Mr. Poilievre. He said that Pierre Poilievre's policies are irresponsible. He called them dog whistle politics. And he said that, and he, he made a point of bringing up what he brought up again today. And that is uh, Mr. Polievre's proning of the idea of uh, cryptocurrencies as a hedge against inflation. Mm -hmm. And that was ahead of the return of the House. So what does that tell us then, Martin, about the tone going forward? What might be the tone in the House going forward? You know, it's really hard to tell, but with these two chief protagonists, it's really hard to imagine it not being very intense and at times personal and maybe nasty. I mean, we've often heard uh, calls for more civility in the House, uh, but that's happened decade after decade, and especially when you look at these two characters and what's at stake, uh, it's hard to know. Some of the Conservatives may be uh, hoping that Pierre Poilievre shows a bit more of a reasonable and a kind-hearted side, but at the same time, the Conservative faithful didn't vote for him in such massive numbers uh, if they didn't like his attack uh, kind of style. So it's hard to tell, hard to predict, but uh, I, I don't know, it's hard to predict it anything changing and this getting less intense. Well, we certainly will be watching. Hard to predict, but we will be watching. Uh, Martin, thank you for that. You're welcome, Michael. Well, a lot of progress has been made on the implementation of the Cannabis Act and its dual objectives of protecting public health and maintaining public safety. We need to assess the work that has been done and learn how and where to adjust where needed to meet these goals. It will also consider impacts on Indigenous peoples, racialized communities, and women who might be at greater risk of harm or face greater barriers to participation in the legal industry based on identity or socioeconomic factors. That was the Health Minister Jean-Yves Duclos and before him Dr. Carolyn Bennett, the Minister of Mental Health and Addiction. Now, the two were announcing a long-awaited review of this country's cannabis laws. The drugs use was legalized back in 2018 and this review will essentially see what has gone right and what still needs fixing. Joining us now with his thoughts on the review is David Hammond. David is from the University of Waterloo, where he's a professor of public health and where he studies cannabis use and policy. David, thank you for joining us. My pleasure. Listen, I want to begin with your assessment at where we are today, nearly four years after cannabis was legalized in this country. Have you seen any trends that should perhaps raise concerns? Well, I think we can probably start with maybe saying what has worked. What has worked, we now have a legal market. Uh, we have somewhere around 75% of the market that shifted to legal stores. So that means billions of dollars going to you know, legitimate businesses and some government revenue. Um, and consumers, for the most part, seem to be relatively happy. So in that sense, I think it's, it's achieved its main objectives of getting up a regulated market. Um, what are some of the concerns? Uh, we've seen a bit of an increase in use, not as much as some people feared, but it has gone up a little bit. Um, you know, one of the concerns that we have is where's the settling point going to be for stores? So most Canadians 
certainly those that live in big cities will see many more cannabis stores. It's a bit of a Goldilocks challenge, which is what's the right amount of stores? We want enough that people shift to the legal market. We don't want so many that it starts to promote cannabis use. We also have questions about the types of products out there. It was shifting before legalization, but what we've seen even over the last three years is uh, more use of higher THC, stronger products. These are things like vape liquids. These are uh, solid concentrates, things like that. So, um, you know, I, I would say that the, the first goal of establishing the market has been accomplished. And now we can start to ask ourselves, what type of regulated market do we want? And, and I think that's what the government will be asking. Well, it's interesting. Uh, you mentioned a couple of examples, and I did want to ask you whether or not the landscape has actually changed, because there is now this access to things like edibles and cannabis uh, vape pens, which you, you reference. From a public health perspective, then, has the challenge now changed for researchers like you and for policymakers? Oh, I think so. Uh, you know, a lot of people listening, you know, might remember the 1970s, where THC levels were about 2 to 5%. So in the average joint or dried flower, it's now 20%, maybe even higher than that. And then we have these other classes of products where the THC level is 60, 70, 80%. Now these products would exist without legalization, but now that we have a regulated market, what do we do about it? Um, there are concerns about edibles that are in candy form, you know, gummy bears, and chocolates. Uh, we you know, we do have a challenge with accidental consumption and people trying to figure out how much to take. Uh, and what we haven't really done is a really good job about educating consumers about the different types of products and really educating them about THC. So most Canadians will know, well, a beer is about this and hard liquor is about this uh, strength. But for THC cannabis products, we're really at the starting point in terms of teaching consumers about some of the differences between products, um, how to sort of take in the amount that you want, and really think about are there some types of products that maybe don't play an important role in a market, especially mm -hmm. those really strong THC products. Mm -hmm. And I know there's been implications for things like impaired driving when it comes to cannabis use. And as you uh, are talking about here, the, the perhaps knowledge gap around cannabis itself. But, you know, I was listening to Carolyn Bennett today, the Minister of Mental Health and Addictions, as they were announcing this review. And, and to hear it from her, she says that, that the use amongst young children has not increased significantly. But I do think it's worthwhile to, to talk about the impact on, on cannabis and younger cohorts, given that we are dealing with different products and, as you say, stronger products in many instances. Yeah, and that's one of the big questions is what happens to use among young people. Everyone agrees that that shouldn't really be happening. It's a good news, bad news story. It hasn't gone up that much. It was already high before legalization. We have one of the highest prevalence of cannabis use among young people in the world. Um, look, one success has been that Canada has very strong federal rules that limit advertising and marketing. We have not seen greater exposure uh, to advertising and marketing for cannabis products. That's key. But you know what? The answer to the question of how has legalization impacted young people, we're really only going to be able to answer that in five or ten years. What it means is my kids, other people's kids growing up, with the legal market, walking by the stores, maybe seeing some of that marketing, and only then will we really be able to give the answer of, um, you know, how has it changed use among young people? I've got about 30 seconds left here, David, but, you know, as this review gets underway, if there's one thing you want to come out of it, what is your biggest hope? 
Well, I think I said it before, but how do we want to regulate it? Do we want uh, really high potent products or are there some products we should take out? What's the right number of retail stores? Um, you know, we need to think about how it's working for the industry, how it's working for public health and how it's working for consumers. And I think Canada has an excellent chance uh, not just to answer the questions for ourselves, but to the many other countries that are looking to do the same thing. David Hammond, really good to speak with you. Thank you for the time. My pleasure. As this review gets underway, another issue is top of mind for many. What to do with Canadians who, before legalization, were convicted for simple possession? Now, that crime no longer exists when it comes to cannabis, but people's lives are still affected. And to talk about it, we're now joined by Anna Maria Ananajor. She is the founder and executive director of the nonprofit Cannabis Amnesty. Anna Maria, thank you for joining us today. Good afternoon, Michael. So as we talk about this review, uh, one aspect that will be examined is past criminalizations. How do, re do you react to that news that they are going to go back and review what has gone right and what has gone wrong? Well, it's uh, a hopeful development, um, but I do note that this government has uh, made strides to examine the impact that past criminalizations have had on individuals, but have done so in a uh, piecemeal fashion in the past. So a year following legalization, uh, Bill C-93 was passed, which provided for expedited and uh, a waiver of the application fee for individuals who want to apply for a pardon. Um, and, and more recently, there is an amendment to um, a bill that's before the Senate currently, Bill C-5, that purports to create an automatic um, suspension or expungement uh, for individuals who have previous cannabis simple possession records, as well as other uh, sim uh, other um, simple possession of illicit substance records. And so the government has been inching towards looking at this, but have done so in a very piecemeal um, and sort of long form fashion and haven't taken it on in a systematic, through a systematic review. Let's go back a little bit though, because as you say, there have been some moves here and one of it has to do with suspending these convictions. Why would that not be enough? Well, suspending um, these convictions uh, means that there is a possibility that they could be reinstated in the future, which is really concerning to a lot of Canadians. But I think more practically, the issue is that a suspension is what we uh, would colloquially call um, a pardon. And um, a lot of the, the, the primary reason why a lot of people get these pardons is uh, and suspensions is because they for employment, but a secondary and very important reason is because they would like to travel to the United States. And the United States does not in fact recognize Canadian pardons or suspensions. So it would be of no benefit to them uh, to, to get uh, a suspension. So, if we look at why suspensions aren't enough, the, the primary reason is because it doesn't actually offer a person relief from the hardship that comes from uh, having a criminal record that they hoped they would get. Let's talk a bit more about that. And to be clear, just for people at home to reiterate, what we're discussing here are simple, are past convictions for simple possession, nothing more. But you've spoken in the past about how having this on a, a record will have an impact on one's life. You mentioned crossing into the United States. You talk about employment. But it goes beyond that as well, doesn't it? 
Uh, yes, absolutely. And there are some ways in which it appears in people's lives that um, are surprising and um, and disturbing. Um, for a number of people, it can come up when even when applying for housing. So there are a number of uh, municipalities, including Ottawa, that employ a, um, uh, a, a multi-housing safety initiative where is a, um, a background check that is required in order to qualify for certain types of housing. Um, and there are other things that also uh, are, appear um, to stifle a, a person's ability to move on with their life, such as um, it uh, previous conviction for cannabis possession, preventing them from obtaining uh, loans, um, either for school or for a business. And if you're trying to rehabilitate somebody who has a previous criminal conviction, but there are these roadblocks in the way, it is quite difficult to find an argument for why there's a, a reason for this to persist. Mm -hmm. um, also, if you would like to volunteer um, for vulnerable sectors, um, this, this kind of conviction can come up in a vulnerable sectors check. Mm -hmm, but mm -hmm. it's quite Let surprising. I know somebody who uh, who wanted to apply for a loan to for post-secondary education wasn't able to obtain one because of a cannabis conviction. So very life-limiting. You know, I'm quickly running out of time, but we also need to point out then, uh, part of the reason why you're doing this too is because there is a racial component that you're trying to raise uh, with these convictions as well. Yes, absolutely. It's despite the fact that cannabis is widely consumed in Canada. We have one of the largest, highest rates of cannabis consumption in the world. Um, people are not being, uh, facing the same consequences for their actions across the board. Despite widespread consumptions, you have um, disproportionate uh, over-representation of low-income Indigenous and Black Canadians uh, in the numbers of people who are stopped, searched, arrested, prosecuted, and uh, ultimately incarcerated for cannabis possession offences. And this is um, evident in uh, in large metropolises, uh, metropolitan areas all over the country. But for example, in Vancouver, you are seven times more likely to be arrested for cannabis possession if you're Indigenous than if you're white. And so that, I think, adds another layer of unfairness um, and injustice. To, to, to the situation. And another point to uh, review as this gets underway. Anna Maria, thank you for this. Really appreciate the time. Thank you so much. The UN Secretary General addressed the Security Council today. The Russian ambassador was not there. But in his comments, Antonio Guterres, well, he condemned saber-rattling from Moscow. It comes as Ukrainian forces continue to push back the Russian invasion. And after Vladimir Putin stated he would be willing to use nuclear weapons to defend Russia. Take a listen to the reaction from the UN Secretary General. This census war has unlimited potential to do terrible harm in Ukraine and around the world. The idea of nuclear conflict, once unthinkable, has become a subject of debate. This, in itself, is totally unacceptable. All nuclear-armed states should recommit to the non-use and total elimination of nuclear weapons. Joining us now is security expert Christian Loiprek, who is also a professor at both Queen's University and the Royal Military College. Christian, good to see you. Thank you for joining us today. Yeah, my pleasure. Listen, I want to begin our conversation with the United Nations because we just heard from the Secretary General. He talked about uh, the human suffering of the past seven months in Ukraine, but really also made this appeal to nuclear states to recommit that they will not use their nuclear weapons. 
Just how real of a fear is this that this might actually devolve into some type of nuclear war? Yeah, that's a good question. So, of course, the human suffering is nothing new to anybody who's lived in the Donbass region since 2014. These sort of atrocities are daily occurrences, and it's only news to the uh, to the Western world. The nuclear escalation, I think there's some debate about how real this is. Look, I mean, it's not clear what this would really achieve for Putin. Um, it would likely lead to inner elite rivalry, um, it won't change the fact that Russia can't take hold or control Ukrainian territory. Uh, it would further isolate Russia, certainly from China. And there's no intelligence assessments to suggest that there's any movement of nuclear warheads. Uh, so in that sense, it looks like this is more a negotiating gambit by Putin in the same way that he's basically used the nuclear power plant at Japorizia as a negotiating token, knowing that there are significant fears in continental Europe and especially Germany about nuclear escalation and so trying to get Western countries, I think, to back off from the prospect of sending more weapons and in particular um, uh, better tanks and more precision guided um, munitions to Ukraine. Now, part of Putin's strategy here seems to be also to, to formalize the territory uh, in which Russian forces now find themselves, because he is, as you know, trying to organize uh, this referenda, these referenda in Russian-controlled areas of Ukraine as a means of annexing that territory. So how concerning is that kind of development? Yeah, again, I think this is a negotiation strategy. Now, of course, as we've already seen, I mean, in international relations, uh, you're only really independent or belong to another state if you're recognized as such. And the international community has made it clear they're not recognizing it. I think this is a gambit by Putin to essentially make these part of Russia. And so that any counterattack by Ukrainian forces would not now be considered by Russia. And that's the signal, an attack on Russian territory. And this is why Putin, in his speech to the nation, mobilized. Uh, the 300,000 soldiers, at least initially, even though the decree is much broader than that, is sort of a signal that uh, the West and NATO pose an existential threat to Russia. And by annexing these territories, it allows him to amplify that narrative. So it's both, I think, uh, intended for uh, a domestic audience in Russia, but it's also intended to send a signal towards Ukraine to try to get them to back off on counteroffensives. And I think it shows just how concerned Putin is that his military may well not stand up against further counteroffensives by Ukraine. Well, this, this attempt to raise another 300,000 troops by Putin, though, that is sparking protests in Moscow. It's also uh, created a crackdown on those opposed to this war. So what does that say to you about the bigger picture? If the Vietnam War was decided on the streets of the United States, is Putin starting to lose the narrative in his own country? The timing here is key because the timing coincides with Biden's speech at the UN and, of course, several other Western leaders saying, we stand behind Ukraine, we will be with Ukraine for the coming months or for the coming years as necessary. And so Putin is signaling, well, I'm prepared to do the same. And so there's been this imbalance between Russia and Ukraine, where Russia has had the weaponry, but not the manpower, and Ukraine has had the manpower, but not the weaponry. And so on Putin's side, he's trying to uh, provide a better alignment between between his manpower and his, uh, his his kinetic capabilities, and so I think the the. And the call up here, I think the reason why it's controversial and why Putin had so far resisted doing this is because 
if you look at the decree, the decree is very broad. Ostensibly, Putin is saying this is calling up reservists, part of his two million reservists. But in practice, anybody can be drafted under this decree. And so it will provide a bit of a legitimation, I think, uh, challenge to the Putin regime. And it means he's going to counter that by more coercive measures and by even more propaganda. We saw this in his speech of essentially explaining this as an existential mm-hmm. threat that the West and Ukraine had created. Mm-hmm. Uh, quickly running out of time here, uh, Christian, but I do want to ask the question, because if we're seeing these types of protests now and, and add on to that the victories that Ukrainian forces are having on the ground, does that in any way lay a path forward for Ukraine, for liberal democracies around the world? Is the current strategy working? Does there need to be an escalation of any kind, be they sanctions, weapons or funding? Well, if nothing else, Putin calling up 300,000 soldiers is a clear signal that any proposal by Putin to negotiate is completely absurd because you don't have a mass mobilization if you're looking to negotiate. And so I think it reinforces, certainly for the Ukrainians, that there's no point on sitting down with the Russians and that the Russians can't be trusted. And so that the only way forward is for Ukraine to maintain the initiative that they now have on the battlefield and to push back uh, the Russian defensive lines as far as they possibly can before the fall and winter sets in. The terrain gets muddy and impassable, and the Russians will then use that stalemate in the winter to reinforce their defensive positions. Christian, always good to get your insight. Thank you for this. Appreciate it. Real pleasure. Take care. You too. Always nice to see Christian. Now, before we leave, we wanted to share this moment with you. This month marks 50 years since the 1972 Summit Series, where Team Canada prevailed over the Soviet Union. Today, hockey legends from that legendary squad were in the House of Commons, from Ivan Cournoyer to Frank Mahovlich to Ken Dryden and Paul Henderson, praised for a win this country has never forgotten. Our world is a different place today than it was during the Cold War, Mr. Speaker. But there are parallels, and one thing remains the same. We will never stop fighting for what is right. Today, as we celebrate the 50th anniversary of the Summit Series and all the members of this historic team, let's remember the best of who we are as Canadians. Let's continue our work to make sure people, young and old, players and fans, can be part of this extraordinary sport in a safe and respectful environment. Let's keep reminding the world that being polite and friendly never precludes us also being tough and determined. And let's remember that with hope and hard work, there's nothing we can't overcome. Merci, Monsieur. Merci, You've made us all proud. You've given us one of the defining moments of Canadian history. In fact, I think if any Canadian were asked to close their eyes and dream up uh, the most Canadian moment, it would be hard to think of anything more Canadian than the 72 Summit Series victory. I'm Michael Serapio. You've been watching Primetime Politics. Thanks for being with us.
okay. This is kind of uh...